everyone. Welcome back to an all new edition of the 20% podcast, the podcast that brings you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you can implement in your current job today. Today's guest is Dave Laundromat Millionaire Men's, who is a laundromat industry veteran and the owner of Queen City Laundromat chain of laundromats in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dave's inspirational journey from poverty growing up in Flint, Michigan to becoming a millionaire has inspired many entrepreneurs to try and overcome their own obstacles while building wealth. Dave is obsessively driven to help teach and inspire others while elevating the laundromat industry to a whole new level through networking, services, and collaboration. Dave is also the host of the Laundromat Millionaire Business Podcast, which is an absolute must listen. On today's show, you'll hear Dave's lessons from poverty and how that shaped him. Using the fear of poverty as motivation, Dave's story of buying a business on Craigslist and turning it into a million dollar business, the importance of modernizing antiquated processes, how you should not let your fear paralyze you, and much more. Please enjoy this conversation with Dave, Laundromat Millionaire Men's. Dave, welcome to the 20% Podcast. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. I uh, really enjoy your podcast, so I'm excited to be a guest. Yes, I am so excited. And your nickname is The Laundry Mat Millionaire. So before we, <laughs> get, before we get into that, I mean, could you just let everybody know who is Dave Menz? Yeah, so Dave Menz is a kid who grew up really poor in Flint, Michigan as a young child. My dad worked most of my childhood to get us kind of scrape out of poverty into sort of lower middle class. Uh, wasn't able to go to college. Um, just went right into the work field, kind of had a 17 year career in, uh, in, uh, corporate America as they call it. Um, but I always wanted to own my own business when I was a little kid, when I was five years old at, uh, at graduation for kindergarten, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I wanted to be a business owner and all the, all the adults kind of looked at me and laughed, thought, oh, that's so cute. Cause you know, this kid was wanted to be Batman and this one wanted to be a professional baseball player. Right. And, uh, but I don't know, I, I don't, I always tell people, I don't know if you're born that way or if it comes from somewhere, but all I know is I don't ever remember a day when I didn't want to be a business owner. Where did that come from? Is it as like a five-year-old? Where did that come from? Yeah, I honestly I have no idea. Um, I I the only thing I can really come up with is that I didn't know anyone in my life that owned a business, um, and it just I, I honestly I think part of where it came from is I'm fiercely independent. Like even as a kid, I was like this kid that was tough to raise because it was like you can't tell me what to do kind of thing. Um, and as I became older, I realized that like being an entrepreneur, being a business owner, it's certainly not all it's cracked up to be. Sometimes it can be very stressful, but what you do get is freedom. You have the freedom to make your decisions and you have to live with the consequences of those. And I've always been a big believer in myself. Um, I've always believed I didn't need an MBA to be successful. I didn't need other people's approval to be successful. Um, I just need to believe in myself. And I always have believed in myself. I've always had uh, you know, some people call me cocky and arrogant. Uh, you know, I've always seen it as just competence that whatever I got to do, I'm going to do. I'm not, you know, I always use the word grit uh, to kind of describe myself. And I've always known that about me, even when no one else did believe in me. Um, and so I just saw the path where I was like, what, a, you know, the entrepreneurship world, the business ownership world is just, it's all about results. You know, it's, it's all about results. That's all that matters. Uh, nothing else matters. And so I was, I was very attracted to it, I guess, because of my mentality, I guess is what right. I would say. And so this mentality, I mean, you, you grew up in Flint, Michigan, which is, you know, obviously, as I said before, when we started, what I know of Flint, Michigan is the water crisis that happened, but yeah. I know that that's a pretty impoverished area. Um, so, so growing up, I mean, what was it like? What did you learn from being poor? What did poverty teach you that you now appreciate yeah. as a, as a businessman? You know, it taught me some really hard lessons that make me who I am today. It taught me that no one's going to give me anything. Um, it taught me that I'm not going to get any advantages in life. 
Um, and that if I want anything, I got to go get it. And from a very young age, I like to tell the story of I was seven years old, had a nine-year-old brother. And if we wanted to go to the local pharmacy to get some candy, you know, mom, mom and dad didn't have a dollar to give us. And a dollar was more back then than it is now, but right. they didn't have, we didn't have anything extra. Um, and so if we wanted that, I grew up in Michigan. A lot of people, don't, if you're not from Michigan, you don't understand what a bottle deposit is, but in Michigan and some other States, uh, when you buy like soda and beer and things like that, the bottles and the cans have a deposit of 10 cents each on them. And so what we would do is we would go around the neighborhood collecting cans and bottles um, where most states, they recycle them like by the pound for aluminum and things like that. Right. But if you took them to the local, local grocery store or pharmacy, they would exchange them. And for every one of them you found, you would get 10 cents. And so uh, we were six, seven years old and we would ride around the neighborhood for, I would never let my kids do what I did, <laughs> uh, but I'd ride around the neighborhood for sometimes hours, just looking for cans and bottles. And, you know, once it'd be me and my brother and another friend usually, um, and once we each got basically 10 or 15 of them, we would go to the local pharmacy and get, you know, a little Tootsie Roll or Lollipop or whatever. Right. Uh, cause that was the only way we were going to get it. Like mom and dad wasn't going to give us a dollar. That was just the way that it was. And so from a very young age, I just learned one that nobody was going to give me anything. And that was a fantastic life lesson. And the other side of it was, but if I wanted to go get it myself, I always could. And so those were really, really impactful uh, so messages at a young seven. age. Yeah, that seven-year-old, what you were, what you learned there, maybe that was that was a big positive of of, yeah. of growing up poor because if your parents were just giving you, and I think this 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 is a big lesson as well. I mean, yes, even for those people who who are fortunate, that's great that your parents have the money to be able to give you this stuff. But sometimes you're going to become that brat. Maybe you need that experience. You probably wouldn't yeah. be the same without that experience. So that's uh, so, and I mean. In that grittiness, I, I just hear the businessman coming out of you at that young age. So let's talk about next from from growing up a little bit further into into the corporate years. You mentioned, um, you know, you you were in the corporate world for seventeen years. What did you do in the corporate world? And let's just start there. Yeah, so I started as an entry level position at the local telephone company in Cincinnati, which is called Cincinnati Bell. Um, I started an entry level position. I don't know if you remember this, but it used to be something called four one one. Uh, we would call 411 and get a phone number back before the internet, things like that. Needed a phone number to pizza place. I was a 411 operator. Um, and it was a very mindless, thankless job. Paid right at minimum wage, I would say. Uh, had to drive an hour commute. So it certainly wasn't worth it, but it was an opportunity. And I knew that Cincinnati Bell um, very much promoted from within. And so I knew if I wasn't going to be able to go to college, I needed to find an entry-level position at a company that would promote from within, provide training, resources, things like that. Because once again, I knew that I would go get it. I just, but I couldn't make an opportunity up here. So all I really looked for was an opportunity. And when I found that, I just took it and ran with it. And over the course of that career, um, I worked in sales, I worked in marketing, and I eventually left. Uh, I was promoted five times in 17 years. And when I eventually left, I was a pretty highly skilled uh, outside sales or outside um, plant technician. Um, so I was the guy climbing the telephone poles, working on the phone lines, things like that. Um, and they sent you to local community college. You had to get like a certificate, um, like a technical training of two years uh, to be able to do something like that. But once again, they paid for it. Right. Um, so I just had to be willing to go get it. That was it. Um, and so that was kind of my career at Cincinnati Bell. When I first started there, it was a fantastic company to work for um, in every way, shape and form, culture, compensation, you name it. And by the time I left, it was a very different company than when I started. 
And during that journey, probably around year 10 or so, I'd always wanted to own my own business. But there was a time where I was so content and happy at Cincinnati Bell that I probably wouldn't have left. I probably would have worked there my whole life and just hopefully continue to get promoted. Right. Um, and there was a time probably 10 or 12 years in where I just, uh, I just realized this company was changing and I was 30 something years old. And I was like, I'm not doing this till I'm 60. Like, this is crazy. Um, and so that kind of brought, it kind of brought out that dormant uh, fire to own my own business because I didn't have an option. Like I couldn't just leave and make that money somewhere else. Um, and so we, you know, me and my wife got married. I think I was around 26 when we got married. Um, and when we did, I just looked at her one day and I just said, you know, I always said, I want to own my own business someday. And I do. And she looked at me and, you know, we're both planners um, and we're not afraid of hard work. And we looked at each other and said, well, I mean, nobody, once again, nobody's going to hand us a business. Like we got to figure out, you know, instead of just being in the rat race and paying our bills and we, we cut our lifestyle drastically. And if we got, as we got raises and she got her master's degree, cause she's a school teacher. Um, as she got her master's degree and we got promotions and raises, we just kept our lifestyle really low and kind of squirreled away that money for like a seed um, to be able to someday buy our first business. We had no idea what business we would own. I just knew that I wasn't prepared. So it didn't really matter. Um, I had to prepare once again, back to that kind of childhood mentality, if you will. Right. And what was the biggest lesson? It sounds like you were obviously it, you were in the trenches working hard to make money at that given time, but you still had that goal down the road of wanting to have that business, even not knowing what it was. How did you keep on that path of really staying focused on that goal when I'm sure sometimes it probably wasn't that easy? You know, I think I would say it's a few different things, but one of them is when you grow up in extreme poverty, like you realize, even as a kid, like you realize you're really not that far from homelessness. And I was never homeless. Um, and I don't remember ever having, not having the bare necessities, uh, but we never really had any extra. So even as a kid, like you're aware, like you're aware you're, family doesn't really have much margin for error. And as I grew up and got a little older and matured, I would look around the world and I would see, I don't have to live this way. Um, and so I just wasn't afraid to, I wasn't afraid to, to go after something and get it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I, you could call it fear and I try not to let fear control me, but I'm sure it has a part of it. Um, I tell my wife every day, like, I'm not going back there. Like, I'm not going back there. My family will never know that world. Um, no matter what I have to do, my only two boundaries are legal and ethical. Like right. If it's, if it's unethical to me, it's not worth it. If it's illegal, it's obviously not worth it to me. Other than those two things, there's pretty much nothing that I won't, you know, sacrifice uh, to, to make sure that my family is what I call financially free. Um, and so that's been a driving force for me, even when I was younger. I mean, quick story, when I went through pole climbing school, which is part of that technical training I right. told you about, I'm scared of heights. And so when I go to pole climbing school, all I knew is I was going from a job making 45 a year to making 75 a year. And that's a pretty drastic difference. Um, and, and so all I knew, I, my wife was like, how are you going to go through pole climbing school? You're scared of heights. I was like, all I know is I'm either going to die or I'm going to pass. Like I'm going to fall off that pole, break my neck and die, or I'm going to pass because I'm not going to quit. I just, I'm just not. And I approach business ownership and entrepreneurship the same way. Um, so you could call it tenacity, but I guess, <laughs> I guess at its core, uh, you know, my wife always says I have a pretty big chip on my shoulder. Uh, and I guess I do. And it's a pretty driving force to, uh, not ever want my children to live the way I lived and to also never go back there myself. Like, I don't ever want to have that feeling again. 
Wow. I love that. And, and you let that, those hard times drive you. And obviously we're still living in some pretty tough times now with, you know, yes. almost in, in May of, of COVID um, of 2021. Now, <laughs> before we, before we move in, I think that's so incredible that you, you literally had a fear of climbing poles, but then you decided to do that. What was the ultimate, was it, was it the money that caused you to, to do make that, that big overcome that big fear or what was the ultimate driver of that? You know, I guess it was the money in a way, but I'll preface that. What I mean by that is when you grow up really poor, you realize how powerful money is. Now it's still a tool, right? It's just a piece of paper, but it's a powerful piece of paper. And when you don't have it, you realize how important it is. So when you've always had it, never been without it, a lot of times you take that for granted and you don't right. realize that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it, you know, it's, it's the old cliche. It wasn't the money I was chasing. It was what the money could get me, right. which was freedom, independence, um, those types of things. So I guess it was the money. <laughs> right. but, and that's, that's the same. I, I understand where you're coming from though, because, you know, my goal in life is, is to make more money for the fact that I could, I could use those, that money to buy experiences, uh, to take yes. my family to Disney world or, you know, go down to the beach or, or whatever. It's not about the actual thing, but the memories that you can make with it. So I completely understand. Uh, I think we're on the same page there. So, okay. So you're, you're you stocked all this money away. How did you buy your business? Yeah, that's a crazy story, actually. Um, yeah, so I, you know, we eventually reached a point where we had some money squirreled away, about $30,000. Um, and we knew that wouldn't take us far. You know, wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't be able to buy a $500,000 business with 30 grand. And so I would look around. Um, ultimately, what happened is I looked around for years at businesses for sale in every way I could. Um, and this was like back around uh, 2007. And then we ended up buying our first business in 2010. Um, so during that window, the, inter the internet was around, but it certainly wasn't what it is today. Um, and so back then Craigslist was a pretty big deal and it was pretty antiquated, pretty, you know, it wasn't fancy by any stretch of the imagination. It was kind of clunky, but it did have a category that was businesses for sale and you could choose that category and then you could choose your city. And I'm sure it still does probably. Um, and I would just sit for hours and hours after work every night scrolling businesses for sale. Cause I've always been fascinated by business ownership and entrepreneurship and different business models but I didn't really care what the product was. I've been telling people since I was a little kid, I want to own my own business someday. And everybody would ask me, you know, once again, the adults would ask a little, little 10 year old Dave, Oh, what kind of business do you want to own? It doesn't matter. I don't care. Like the product wasn't important to me. I didn't dream of owning a bicycle shop or whatever. I just dreamed of owning a business. It was the, I always compare it to golf. I say some people for entertainment purposes, they play this game called golf and they hit this ball and chase it around the course. For me, business ownership and entrepreneurship is a game. It just so happens that I get paid to do it really well versus having to pay to play golf. Right. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that because a lot of people that are business owners and entrepreneurs, they're not even passionate about business ownership and entrepreneurship. They're just passionate about what it can give them, you know, the money, the power, whatever. Um, but I genuinely love the game. It just so happens uh, that doing the game and playing the game really well, um, you know, can set you up financially. So we ended up finding through Craigslist, uh, ended up stumbling upon a local laundromat for sale a couple miles from my house. And I knew whatever business I bought, I wouldn't be able to leave my job right away. And so I knew that I needed something that could do as, you know, people call it the side hustle. Right. And I knew I needed something like that. I just didn't know exactly what it looked like. And so I wasn't even pursuing a laundromat. I was just looking for that type of business. And I looked over years and years and almost every time I would come to something that with any business that would say, oh, that's just not an option for me because of my situation. And I went into, found this local laundromat for sale, started researching it, looking into the industry. Um, and 
long story short, I just, I just never got a no, like I never got a red flag and I just eventually ended up closing on it. Uh, but we, you know, we were young and no business experience. I didn't have a degree. My wife has multiple degrees. So we go to the bank and they just, you know, I, I applied to probably 20 financial institutions before uh, somebody approved me. And so it was a pretty arduous process. Uh, but once again, that grit came out and I just said, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to quit. Somebody is going to tell me yes. Um, and I won't stop. So we eventually ended up buying this local laundromat for sale. That was kind of a rundown dump, if I'm honest. Uh, but I just saw a lot of value add. I just saw a lot of potential. And um, I really fell in love with the fact that it was a vital community resource. The laundromat industry is really misunderstood because when you say the word laundromat, everybody has a negative connotation associated with it. And rightfully so. Our industry has earned that reputation, unfortunately. But the reality is that it's a vital resource in every community. And so when you're in a community where a laundromat is not well run, is not what I call modernized and updated on a regular basis and invested in by the owner, then the community suffers for that. Usually the owner will still find a way to make a profit, um, but the community really suffers. And so one of the, I've always kind of had this like altruistic uh, heart, if you will. And so I really wanted a business if I could, where I could make money, support my family, but also serve my community. I wanted it to be something that wasn't, um, I wanted to own a business that wasn't wanted. I wanted to own a business that was needed. Right. And when I really, when it really started to click during the due diligence that that was the case, I was just like, get out of my way. <laughs> um, and I'm very, very passionate about our industry to this day, 12 years later. That's so um, interesting. Because of, the, because of the same thing. It's just a very unique business model. I tell everybody that'll listen, the laundromat business is the best small business in America. And Most why? people just don't know it. Why is that? Uh, great question. So there's really seven reasons. One of them is the, probably the most important one, in my opinion, that it's a vital community. Um, number two is it's a very simple cash business. So you don't have to have an MBA in business to enter the industry and to function and to be successful. You just really have to care and have to have some grit. Um, the business, the industry is very antiquated, meaning that it's very mom and pop and it's very, um, unsexy. So what I mean by that is a lot of people that are interested in business and entrepreneurship aren't interested in my industry because it doesn't sound cool. And tell you a quick story. Once again, I can't tell you how many times in my last 11, 12 years that I've been in the laundromat industry, I'll meet somebody new for the first time. And, you know, guys, we associate our success by our career. Right? What do you do for a living? It's like the first thing everybody asks, right? Right. And if this guy says he's a lawyer, everybody's impressed by that. And if this guy's a surgeon, everybody's impressed. I say, I'm an entrepreneur. Just how I answer the question. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. They're just blown away. They're so impressed by that. And of course, the follow-up question is, what do you, what, do what you kind do? of business do you do? And then I say, I own laundromats. And every single time you, like, they cannot hide it. They're like, oh. And you can see it in their eyes and their face. They're basically thinking, oh, I thought you owned a real business. Like, because they just associate a laundromat as this little dump. Uh, Business-wise, people don't realize, like, how profitable it can be. Um, and so it's, it's a non-sexy business. It's very antiquated. It's very kind of old school and, and technology is coming into the industry and it's revolutionizing it, but that's a big part of it. Um, another thing is that it's very flexible. So there are, there is things that have to be done. A lot of people think that the laundromat business is passive, you know, fully Set passive. It and forget it kind of thing. Um, yes. And it's not, but the reality is the work that needs to be done, you decide when it needs to be done. So the business doesn't own you. You own the business. There are things that need to be done. It is what we call semi-passive, but it's not fully passive. Um, another one is just the money. 
plain and simple, just the money because the ROIs, the cash on cash ROIs for owning a laundromat on the low end are 20 to 30%. Oh, wow. and on the high end are 50% up to infinite um, cash on cash. And so it's a, it's a very profitable business, especially if you operate at the top of the industry. So we operate you, at the bottom of the industry. It's not quite as profitable. So how do you differentiate yourself? You know, when I think of a laundry mat, I think, you know, Oh, you just have to have some washers and dryers. Like what makes it, what makes it so special or how do you differentiate yourself as a, what makes a good laundromat versus a bad one essentially? Yeah. Great question. You know, anything in business is all about value proposition and customers in any industry are willing to pay more for a better value. And so what you do is you look at your market, you do competitive analysis, you look at the things your competitors do well, and you say, I want to do those as good or better. And then you look at the things that they don't do well, which is once again, a pretty low bar because it's a pretty antiquated industry. And you say, I want to do those really, really well. And so you just differentiate yourself. So things like modern amenities, um, <clears throat> modern equipment, um, our store, one of our stores right now has a Santa wash ozone system in it, which I won't bore you with the technology, but it basically sanitizes every load of laundry. So it doesn't just clean it. It actually sanitizes the wash as it comes through. No better time to have a system like that than during yeah. a virus pandemic, by the way. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but other things like your layout, a lot of laundromats are very small. They have very narrow aisles. They have old equipment that technically works, uh, is functional, but a lot of times they're not very clean. A lot of times they're not very safe. Um, a lot of laundromats are what we call unattended, uh, meaning there's no one there to keep track of the place. And if somebody comes in and decides to do something crazy, like start dancing on a table, there's really no one in charge. I mean, it's kind of, a, it's like being at a park, like it's kind of a free for all. Right. Um, so being attended, which is kind of the higher end of the industry, having employees that are there that aren't just bodies, but are actually well-trained customer service professionals to help people and assist people and hold the doors for them and all the things that we associate with customer service and general the restaurant industry. Right. Yeah. It's really no different for ours. The difference is because the bar is set so low in our industry that most people, if you set the bar low, they'll shoot low, they'll aim low. Um, I saw that's one of the big differentiators in my opinion of laundromats and why I think they're one of the best small businesses in America is because the bar is so low. And a lot of people look at that and say, well, I don't want to be associated with that. But see the, the, the young Dave Menz looks at that and says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do something about that. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be a part of the change. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense, but everything from the width of the aisles to, you know, payment systems, uh, most older laundromats that are kind of antiquated and old and dirty, uh, they usually just operate on quarters, which is what we've been working operating on for 40, 50 years. Newer modernized laundromats have phone pay apps where you can start the machines from your phone and you can get rewards. It's not any different than the, the modernized part of society. It's just that 75% of our industry is still operating in the 80s. Um, and so when you operate at the top of the industry, your value proposition is just through the roof compared to your competitive, your, your market. Um, so essentially your, and, your differentiator is just taking a maybe older and antiquated uh, business model and just kind of modernizing it in, in providing a level of customer service that's unheard of in the industry, I guess. Is that, was that yes. what some of your keys are? And, and I think that this, this is a great lesson for everybody. I mean, no matter what you're doing, value, providing value to your customers and giving them the best experience that they can is relatable to any job. So I think it's really interesting. And as you know, Dave, as a fan of the podcast, trying to relate some of the skills from all of these industries, really, it just comes down to servicing your customer and providing value. So, so that's, inc that is, that is really incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so those are the, those are the top five. I actually have two more. Uh, one of them is that the business is actually very scalable because as the business and the industry has modernized, which once again, a portion of the industry has, there's actually a lot of vertical integration that can happen. So I own four laundromats right now in Cincinnati. I'm building a fifth, um, but we've also implemented um, a drop-off laundry service, which a lot of people don't associate with a modernized laundromat. Um, and a lot of people just think, oh, you drop off their clothes. This lady just does it however she wants, gives it back to you in a garbage bag. Once again, 75, 80% of the industry, that's exactly what, type, what a drop-off laundry service is. So we focus on being very professional, um, having very repeatable processes and procedures. And we built a pretty tremendous revenue stream just from the drop-off laundry side of things, in addition to our core business, which is self-serve. Well, then we've taken it a step further three or four years from now, and we started a pickup and delivery business. Love um, it. And, and so now we're actually going to people's homes and small businesses, picking up their laundry. Um, we've implemented technology, have a software suite associated with it. And so I, we've, you know, an industry that once again is mostly stuck in the 70s and 80s, right. people operating at the top of the industry, most of them are still self-serve laundry. They're not vertically integrated. You're doing so laundry. You start adding these other. You're doing laundry that? as a service right now. Yes, absolutely. And the reality is that now we've only been doing pickup and delivery for four years. And in the four years we've been doing laundry pickup and delivery, we actually generate twice the revenue that any of our stores do. And this is an add-on. Like this is a, this is a ancillary service. Um, not that it is a revenue, but I mean, right. it's the, the margins are similar. And so I always tell people when you take a self-serve laundromat, and it's already profitable. It pays its rent, it pays its bills, it has associated margins and you can take some money home. And then you add drop-off laundry service onto it. That's a vertical integration, right? And you do that. Now it's more profitable because it's, you're just compounding things. My rent didn't double because I added another revenue stream of drop-off laundry. That helps pay for attendance to be in the store, which right. increases your payroll, which increases your customer service, which by the way, usually is associated with increasing your revenue on your self-service. With customer retention, with customer retention and coming back and in referrals yep. as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, and of- then you take the pickup and delivery and essentially what we've done is turned a three, $350,000 laundromat into a million dollar laundromat and it's, it'll change your life. So that the vertical cool. integration is a huge, huge part of it. And you don't have to go that route to be successful in the laundromat industry. That's just my story. Um, but the last one is the real estate. There's a real estate play because you can take your business. And in a lot of cases, they're in small, single, uh, single use buildings. Um, a lot of times they're in smaller strip malls that you can acquire pretty reasonably. And now you have a real estate play because you're, I mean, all you're doing is taking money out of one pocket and putting it in the other pocket. Right. So you can you determine what the lease is. So you could take that money, that, that extra revenue that you're getting and double it down into another, another laundromat. And I'm yep. sure too now, right. I mean, especially with, with what's going on in, uh, with COVID times, I mean, with commercial real estate, I'm sure that's probably more, you're probably going to take advantage of some of the tougher times in that side of the industry too, right? Doubling down yeah. where maybe, you know, obviously the, the residential side of things is really tough right now, knowing that we're like, we're trying to buy a house right now. So we, right. we know it is how tough. Yeah. more, I've heard that there's more licensed real estate agents than there are homes in the, on the, on the U S market right now, which is, wow. which, which is insane. That's I don't crazy. know if that's true. Don't hold it to me. Don't yeah. hold it, to it. But as a trying yeah. to buy a house, that's kind of, I, I agree with it, but wow, but the, I know it's brutal. Is the commercial side of things, is that going to open up for you too? Or is that another area of, um, of opportunity? Yeah, we already own a commercial, a couple of commercial buildings for that reason. We even, we very intentionally leveraged our, uh, laundromat portfolio, if you want to call it that into commercial real estate, um, and bought a couple of the buildings that we're in. 
And it's a fantastic play because you know, you have a guaranteed tenant, like, you know, you're going to get paid. So right. you don't have to account for this and that. And it's a, it's a, a laundromat is one of the great, um, it's one of the greatest tenants that a, especially a smaller shopping center strip mall can have because they act as an anchor tenant, like to move. I mean, the infrastructure associated with a retail laundromat is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in value. Right. So you can't just pick that up and move it across the street. Like you can a pizza oven or a, a, you know, a retail rack that has some coats on it or even a tattoo place or what, you know, a lot of the right. places, a, a convenience store. Um, you can, you just can't move that across the street. So a uh, laundromat, I actually, I do laundromat coaching and I have a lot of people reach out to me that own uh, commercial real estate and they find out how valuable having a modernized laundromat is in their, sp- in their space. And a lot of them will reach out to me and they want me to help them find somebody to operate a laundromat and, and build a laundromat in their facility. And the return on investment for the property owner is through the roof. Right. If you find the right operator to do it the right way, because they basically can't ever leave. I mean, you're signing a 10-year lease with two 10-year options. And at the end of 10 years, there's zero chance they're leaving. <laughs> like zero. They're a good profitable um, company, right? They're not. They're absolutely. Not, I love absolutely. that. And if they're, you know, a lot of amount of commercial property owners, they maybe hear this or like, I don't want to laundromat in my property. Once again, this is all prefaced on the fact of having a modernized laundromat operate at the top of the industry. And if you Google these things and look at these things, like they are the Taj Mahals of laundromats. Most people would look at that and say, that's not what I think of when I think of a laundromat. It's not the stereotypical laundromat and it's a tremendous investment. So my point is that even if you're a commercial property owner, putting a modernized laundromat in your space is a fantastic investment. But when you're both, when you, when you get both sides of this equation, I mean, it's just stupid. It's just ridiculous how profitable it can be. You're serving your community. You're bettering your community. Uh, you have all the flexibility in the world in your life. Like it is, it, it'll, it'll just change your life. There's just no other way to put it. And it's really all predicated on some very, very basic, simple things, being clean, customer service, you know, what a novel idea, right? <laughs> Providing not just the foundational baseline customer service, but going above and beyond. Right. You know, I always compare it to the Chick-fil-A of the world, right? Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, me and my wife went through there just the other night because we love that place. Oh, yeah. And I handed her and I handed her the bag and we were on the way to a ball game. Handed her the bag. I said, hey, before I drive, before I get a parking lot, check her bag. And she looked at me and she goes, it's Chick-fil-A. And I real and I told her, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Like we won't leave the drive-thru window at McDonald's because they never get our order right. Right. <laughs> so uh, but you know, Chick-fil-A, customer service, execution, it's just expected. So you're taking this, I love this. And, and two, just to remind everybody, this is a man who ha- didn't have a college degree. So Correct. if you, if still you don't. Just rewind, yeah, it's still don't. So if you rewind backward, I mean, this is what that grit of that poverty of, of what he went through early on gave him all of this experience and all that drive and motivation to get where he is today. And like I said before, he's considered, you know, he owns multiple uh, million dollar laundromats and it is, known as the laundromat millionaire. Now, before when we were talking, I think this is pretty interesting. You, you mentioned um, at the point, everybody looks at millionaires thinking, oh my goodness, like <laughs> everybody wants to go as a, as a 20 year old or wh- however old you are, you want to become a millionaire. But can you tell everybody what it felt like when you guys, when you finally realized you were a millionaire? Yeah. So what ended up happening is uh, it was, it was probably, probably four or five years ago. Now we were just updating our, our personal financial statement. Uh, we were applying for a loan, uh, which we've done a hundred times. And when we first applied, our net worth was roughly $50,000 back when we were like 32, 31, 32, something like that for our first laundromat. Um, And this was uh, roughly seven years later 
Um, and we had applied for many loans. I mean, we had to leverage, we had to use leverage to buy a lot of what we have, pretty much all of what we have. Um, so we'd, we'd done this exercise many, many times. And all of a sudden we did it one day and I completed the process and I, it's basic, basic addition and subtraction, right? <laughs> and, uh, and you, you, you subtract, uh, you know, from your net worth and you, you look at it and you say, I, I was sitting in my office and me and my wife both have offices in the same room in her house and she was working and I was working and I looked at her and I said, do you realize we're millionaires? And she goes, huh? <laughs> I said, like, I just finished our PFS. We're, millionaires we're worth we're worth over a million dollars and she looked up from her computer and she goes i don't feel like a millionaire and looked back down and went back to work but that's my wife you have to know my wife too she's pretty laid back <laughs> i'm like i sat there for an hour going that's pretty cool right all right like i'm a billionaire and she was like i don't care <laughs> right. so the reality is a be a billionaire isn't what it used to be you know a million bucks 20 30 years ago is a lot of money right and don't get me wrong if you're not a millionaire it's still a lot of money um, and, and it absolutely is a fantastic, I mean, it's changed my family tree. It has not just changed my life. It's changed my family tree. Um, and now four or five years later, like I said, pick up and delivery, all these other things, real estate. Now we're approaching multimillionaire status. Um, but the reality is that, you know, being a millionaire isn't what it used to be. Um, but it's really what, you know, we never pursued that, but I, I think it's a good goal. Like, I don't think, you know, if you, if your net worth is 20 bucks, I don't think it hurts to shoot for 10 grand. Right. If you achieve that goal, you know, I always, I'm a firm believer in raising that ceiling. You know, I want to see what I can achieve in life, not just about money, uh, but everything we do in our life, all of our businesses are all based on servitude. Right. So we that's, focus on people first and, exactly, and we believe the money will the money follow. A, the money is a byproduct of yes. that good service. So if you're, and I believe in good karma and stuff too. So you're doing yes. good, you're giving back, you're, you're having quality service and it results in, in, in this money. Now that's, that is so incredible, Dave. I, I want to finish up here with a couple couple uh, more rapid fire-ish questions. Um, okay. What's your best piece of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial advice? My best piece of entrepreneurial advice is don't allow fear to paralyze you. Uh, there's been a lot of research done with end-of-life studies. Uh, people that are terminally ill, people that are just you know old and just going to die. They're 99 years old or whatever. They're kind of at the end of their lives. And there's been a lot of research done on this and they've asked these people at the end of their lives, what, what regrets do you have in life? And consistently, consistently across society, even across generations, even across different um, socioeconomic paths, um, even different cultures in other countries, consistently the only regrets or the, the most magnified regrets people have in life are what they didn't try. The, the things they always wanted to do, you could call it a bucket list, whatever. Right. Um, the things that they didn't do Ironically, those same people had no regrets for trying things and failing miserably. Isn't that fascinating? And so I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm believer at the end of my life. I just don't want to have any regrets and I'm not afraid to fail. And I really believe it's a part of my success. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's no, nobody is fearless. Like don't buy that. <laughs> no, everybody has fear. It's just a matter of whether you let it control you or not. Dave, I love that advice. That is that is incredible. So for everybody as an action item, you need to go and and, and this is what I'm going to do as well. I, I try to take something from every episode and this one, listening to this one back, I'm going to hear a, a number of things that um, besides uh, besides starting my own laundromat um, and getting Dave's advice <laughs> here is, is laundromat coaching. Um, I'm going to try to do that list of like, what are the things that I want to do that maybe fear has not allowed me to do so far and and try to just start tackling that because even if you fail, you tried, right? 
Yeah. I, I love that. So you, you mentioned uh, before we were talking as well that uh, in, in that it was one of the core things that parenting and, and your daughter at the time was was the most important thing to you, right? Yes. When you were, when you were younger, um, now you have multiple kids. What's your best piece of parenting advice? Um, my best piece of parenting advice, and I don't claim to be an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, um, is two things. One, cut yourself a little slack because parenting is really, really, really freaking hard. And I don't care how intentional you are, how many books you read, like you're going to mess up and you're going to mess up big time. And it, if you take your job as a parent seriously, like it's hard, like it'll tear you apart because you, you like, you think you're ruining this person's life who you're responsible for. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, if you, if you want to learn from people, um, then watch them watch what I've always done, even before I had kids, which is kind of crazy to think about now. Uh, but this is just how my mind works. I've always looked at people that, accompl- that were accomplishing things I wanted to accomplish and tried to learn from them. And I even did this with parenting because when I was a teenager, like I knew I wanted to be a dad someday. Like I knew it would be important to me. And I have always, ironically enough, I always joke that I'm a very educated man for not having a college degree. Absolutely. Uh, because I've read thousands of books. Um, and I've observed and talked to so many people that are, uh, you know, really good at a specific thing. And so I would apply that to parenting as well. So I would tell people, if you see somebody that's a bad parent or that, or let's not even call it bad, they're just a parent type of parent you don't want to be, then you don't take advice from them. Right. But if you find somebody that's a really fantastic parent, whether it's in your church or community or you're out to dinner and you just see somebody like being, being the parent you want to be then don't be afraid to reach out to them. Just like we do this in the business world and the entrepreneurship world. Like how flattering would it be as a parent to have somebody reach out and say, wow, you like, I'm watching you interact with your six-year-old. You're an amazing dad. Like, can I just ask you for a couple tips? Like we do this in the business world, right? Why not? We're, do- we're doing it right now. Right. Why don't we do that? In the, why don't we do that in parenting? So what I would tell you is look for people that are very successful, that are doing things you want to do. And allow them to mentor you, even if it's only for five minutes. You know, another thing is we, we a lot of times associate a mentor in any part of our life as someone that we have to build this relationship with over years and a lifetime. But that's a lot of times not what happens. A lot of times mentors are people that we've never met. We've never interacted with. We've just learned from their example. Um, we've just observed, if that makes sense. But a lot of times if you reach out to those people and you, you know, say flattering things, which that would be. Um, a lot of times they'll reciprocate and they'll, you know, I mean, is there any way I could, you know, I got a one-year-old at home and I'm just, I really, I'm passionate about being a great dad. Like, I'm not trying to take your time right now, but could I buy you lunch in the next couple of weeks and just sit down and pick your brain for an hour? Because it's clear to me, you're a fantastic parent and I want to be a fantastic parent. And I want to learn from you. Like you'd be shocked how many people will just, sure. Like if anybody approached me like that, the answer would be a yes, a hundred percent of the time. Well, and that's, that's exactly how I go about, and I know that that's the parenting advice, but that's how I go about getting all of my guests on the 20% podcast as well. I mean, yeah. literally it's, Hey, I really love what you're doing, or this is really cool. I really admire that. Would you be willing to talk to me about that? This is having the podcast is pretty much having a virtual coffee with somebody, yeah. you know, absolutely. I, you, you just have to position it. Like you're in a coffee shop talking to somebody, right? Yeah. That is yeah, incredible. Absolutely. Crazy. Absolutely. My last question for you, I ask every single guest this question. I'd love it. Okay. We're teaching a college 101 class based upon all of your previous life experience, career experience. What would you teach and why? Um, I would definitely teach entrepreneurship. <laughs> if that isn't obvious, 
Um, and what I would really try to focus on with, you know, assuming I get to choose a curriculum, I guess. Absolutely. Um, first of all, it would be ironic as somebody that didn't go to college was teaching a college course. That would be kind of fun. Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if I were doing that, what I would really do is focus on all the aspects of entrepreneurship um, that are misunderstood. Things like risk and how powerful it is for good and bad. Things like leverage. And they talk about these a lot of times in a positive sense, but I would, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in telling my story and on my, I have a podcast, Laundromat Millionaire business podcast. And on my podcast, I start the first two episodes of me and my wife telling our very real raw journey of what we're talking about. We're talking about a lot of the positives, right? A lot right. of the money and all this, the success and all this stuff. The reality is there's a whole different side to it. You find anyone that's successful, there is a dark side to it. And I think that entrepreneurship is misrepresented as something that's very sexy in Hollywood. And that's, that's good. Like that's the good part of being a business owner and entrepreneur. But I think we also need to make these kids, for lack of a better term, under, help them understand that it ain't, that's not the real world. Like that's right. TV. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes a good class, <laughs> but I feel like it's really misrepresented what business ownership and entrepreneurship is and not to scare people off. But because there's this, especially with the internet, there's this mindset nowadays of like, start a YouTube channel, get a million followers, go viral. And in three months, I'm buying an $8 million mansion. Like, that's not the real world, <laughs> right? Can we, can we, can we come back to reality and, and still focus on the positives and somebody being a millionaire and whatever, that's all great and everything. That's what, you know, that's marketing. But the reality is, can we focus on the reality so that when people decide to become a business owner or an entrepreneur, they really know what they're getting into and they're ready for it. Like they're rolling up their sleeves and they're ready for that dogfight because the reality is that's that's what entrepreneurship really is on a day-to-day -day basis. And a lot of people go into it thinking it's something that it's not. Right. Um, and I'm a big believer in being just very transparent and honest with people. And I think that the younger generations of the world would get a lot out of just that transparency and that honesty and that kind of rawness if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it's like reality entrepreneurship 101. Right. I, I love <laughs> yeah, it. In exactly. the positives and negatives. Dave, this has been so incredible. Um, thank you so much again for your time. Besides the podcast, uh, where else could people learn about you? Yeah. So I, as I mentioned, I do coaching for people that want to get into the industry or if you're in the laundromat industry and are not reaching the levels of success that I'm describing and you want to learn, I do coaching for that. They can reach me at laundromatmillionaire.com, uh, which is my coaching and consulting website. Um, and then I have a book coming out uh, later this year. I don't have an exact date, but it'll be late fall 2021. And it's called Laundromat Millionaire. Um, and so, you know, they can, they can check out my story there as well. Awesome, Dave. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This was great. Thank you so much for taking some time to listen to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it along with your friends as that's one of the best ways that we're able to spread all the lessons that you learned in this show. If you'd be willing, I would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts is that's another great way that we're able to get more incredible guests on the show and also expand the reach of the show as well. Until next time, cheers.